0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, part two of That's Marriage, by Edna Ferber. And now, our story continues. When she had tidied herself, she went out. The things she did were the childish, aimless things that one does who finds herself in possession of sudden liberty. She walked up State Street and stared in the windows, came back, turned into Madison, She passed a bright little shop in the window of which taffy, white and gold, was being wound endlessly and fascinatingly about a double-jointed machine. She went in and bought a sackful, and wandered on down the street, munching. She had supper at one of those white-tiled sarcophagi that emblazoned Chicago's downtown side street. It had been her original intention to dine in state in the rose-and-gold dining room of her hotel. She had even thought daringly of lobster." but at the last moment she recoiled from the idea of dining alone in that wilderness of tables so obviously meant for two. After her supper she went to a picture show. She was amazed to find there, instead of the accustomed orchestra, a pipe organ that panted and throbbed and rumbled over lugubrious classics. The picture was about a faithless wife. Terry left in the middle of it. She awoke next morning at seven, as usual, started up wildly, looked around, "'and dropped back. "'Nothing to get up for. "'The knowledge did not fill her with a rush of relief. "'She would have her breakfast in bed. "'She telephoned for it, languidly. "'But when it came, she got up and ate from the table after all. "'That morning she found a fairly comfortable room, "'more within her means, "'on the north side of the boarding-house district. "'She unpacked and hung up her clothes "'and drifted downtown again, idly. "'It was noon when she came to the corner of State and Madison Streets, "'It was a maelstrom that caught her up "'and buffeted her about "'and tossed her helplessly this way and that. "'The thousands jostled Terry "'and knocked her hat awry "'and dug her with unheeding elbows "'and stepped on her feet. "'Say, look here,' "'she said once, futilely. "'They didn't stop to listen. "'State Madison has no time for Terry's from Watona. "'It goes the way pell-mell. "'If it saw Terry at all, "'it saw her only as a prettiest person in the wrong kind of suit and hat, with a bewildered, resentful look on her face, Terry drifted on down the west side of State Street with the hurrying crowd, State and Monroe. now a sound came to Terry's ears to her ear, harassed with the roaring crash, with the shrill scream of the whistle of the policeman at the crossing, with the hiss of feet shuffling on cement. It was a celestial strain. She looked up toward the sound, a great second-story window opened wide to the street. In it, a girl at a piano, and a man, red-faced, singing through a megaphone, and then a flaring red-and-green sign, Bernie Gottschalk Music House. Come in, hear Bernie Gottschalk's latest hit, the heart-throb song that has got them all, the song that made the squareheads crawl. I come from Paris, Illinois, but oh, you Paris, France. I used to wear blue overalls, but now it's khaki pants. Come in, come in. Terry accepted. She followed the sound of the music, around the corner, up a little flight of stairs. She entered the realm of Uterp, Euterp with her hair frizzled. Euterp with her flowing white robe replaced by soiled white shoes. Uterp, Uterp abandoning her flute for jazz. She sat at the piano, a red-haired young lady whose familiarity with the piano had bred contempt. Nothing else could have accounted for her treatment of it. Her fingers... "'Tipped with sharp-pointed and glistening nails, "'clawed the keys with a dreadful mechanical motion. "'There were stacks of music sheets on counters and shelves "'and dangling from overhead wires. "'The girl at the piano never ceased playing. "'She played mostly by request. "'A prospective purchaser would mumble something "'in the ear of one of the clerks. "'The fat man with the megaphone would bawl out, "'Hickey-boola! Miss Ryan!' "'And Miss Ryan would oblige. "'She made a hideous rattle and crash and clatter of sound.' Terry joined the crowds about the counter. The girl at the piano was not looking at the keys. Her head was screwed around over her left shoulder, and as she played she was holding forth animatedly to a girl friend who had evidently dropped in from some store or office during the lunch hour. Now and again the fat man paused in his vocal efforts to reprimand her for her slackness. She paid no heed. There was something gruesome, uncanny, about the way her fingers went their own way over the defenseless keys. Her conversation with the frowsy little girl went on. What'd he say? Over her shoulder. Ah, he laughed. Well, did you go? Me? Well, what'd you think I am, anyway? I would have took the chance. The fat man rebelled. Look here, get busy. What am I paying you for? Talking or playing, huh? The person at the piano, openly reproved thus before her friend, lifted her uninspired hands from the keys and spake. "'When she had finished, she rose. "'But you can't leave now,' the megaphone man argued. "'Right in the rush hour?' "'I'm gone,' said the girl. "'The fat man looked about, helplessly. "'He gazed at the abandoned piano, "'as though it must go on of its own accord. "'Then at the crowd. "'Where's Miss Swimmer?' he demanded of a clerk. "'Out to lunch.' "'Terry pushed her way to the edge of the counter "'and leaned over. "'I can play for you,' she said. The man looked at her. By sight? Yes. Well, come on. Terry went round to the other side of the counter, took off her hat and coat, rubbed her hands together briskly, sat down, and began to play. The crowd edged closer. It is a curious study, this noonday crowd that gathers to sate its music hunger on the scrouts vouchsafed it by Bernie Gottschalk's music house. Loose-lipped, slope-shouldered young men with bad complexions and slender hands, "'Girls whose clothes are in unconscious satire on present-day fashions. "'On their faces, as they listen to the music, "'it is a look of peace and dreaming. "'They stand about, smiling a wistful half-smile. "'The music seems to satisfy a something within them. "'Faces dull, eyes lusterless, they listen in a sort of a trance. "'Terry played on. "'She played as Terry Sheehan used to play.' She played as no music hack at Bernie Godchalks had ever played before. The crowd swayed a little to the sound of it. Some kept time with little jerks of the shoulder, the little hitching movement of the dancer whose blood is filled with the fever of syncopation. Even the crowd flowing down State Street must have caught the rhythm of it, for the room soon filled. At two o'clock, the crowd began to thin. Business would be slack now, until five, when it would again pick up until closing time at six. The fat vocalist put down his megaphone, wiped his forehead, and regarded Terry with a warm blue eye. He had just finished singing, I've Wandered Far from Dear Old Mother's Knee, Bernie Godchalk Incorporated, Chicago, New York. You can't get bit with a Godchalk hit, fifteen cents each. Hey, girlie," he said emphatically, you sure can play. He came over to her at the piano and put a stubby hand on her shoulder. Yes, sir. Those little fingers... Terry just turned her head to look down her nose at the moist hand resting on her shoulder. Those little fingers are going to meet your face if you don't move on. Who gave you your job? demanded the fat man. Nobody. I picked it myself. You can have it if you want it. Can't you take a joke? Label yours. As the crowd dwindled, she played less feverishly, but there was nothing slipshod about her performance. The chubby songster found time to proffer brief explanations in asides. They want the patriotic stuff. It used to be all that Hawaiian dope and wild Irish rose stuff and songs about wanting to go back to every place from Dixie to Duluth. But now it seems all these here are flag wavers. Honestly, I'm so sick of them I'd gotten a notion to enlist to get away from it. Terry eyed him with withering briefness. A little training wouldn't ruin your figure, she said. She had never objected to Orville's embonpoint. point. But then, Orville was a different sort of fat man, pink-cheeked, springy, immaculate. At four o'clock, as she was in the chorus of, "'Isn't there another Joan of Arc?' a melting masculine voice from the other side of the counter said, "'Pardon me, what's that you're playing?' Terry told him. She didn't look up. "'I wouldn't have known it. Played like that. A second Marseillaise. If the words—what are the words? Let me see a Showed the gentleman a Joan,' Terry commanded briefly, over her shoulder." The fat man laughed a wheezy laugh. Terry glanced round, still playing, and encountered the gaze of two melting masculine eyes that matched the melting masculine voice. The songster waved a hand, uniting Terry and the eyes in informal introduction. Mr. Leon Sammet, the gentleman who sings the Gottschalk songs wherever songs are heard, and Mrs., that is, and Mrs. Sammet. Terry turned. A sleek, Swarthy, world-old young man with a fashionable concave torso and alarmingly convex, bone-brimmed glasses. Through them, his darkly luminous gaze glowed upon Terry. To escape their warmth, she sent her own gaze past him to encounter the arctic stare of the large blonde who had been included so lamely in the introduction as Mrs. Sammet. And at that, the frigidity of that stare softened, melted, dissolved. Why, Terry Sheehan! What in the world? Terry's eyes bored beneath the layers of flabby fat. "'It's why—Ruby Watson, isn't it? Eccentric song and dance!' She glanced at the concave young man and faltered. He was not Jim of the Bijou days. From him her eyes leaped back to the furby-deck splendor of the woman. The plump face went so painfully red that the makeup stood out on it, a distinct layer, like thin ice covering flowing water. As she surveyed that bulk— Terry realized that while Ruby might still claim eccentricity, her song and dance days were over. "'That's ancient history, dear. I haven't been working for three years. What are you doing in this joint? I'd heard you'd done well for yourself, that you were married.' "'I am, that is, well, I am, I—' At that the dark man leaned over and patted Terry's hand that lay on the counter. He smiled. His own hand was incredibly slender long and tapering. "'That's all right,' he assured her, and smiled. "'You two girls can have a reunion later. What I want to know is, can you play by ear?' "'Yes, but—' He leaned far over the counter. "'I knew it the minute I heard you play. You've got the touch. Now listen. See if you can get this, and fake the bass.' He fixed his somber and hypnotic eyes on Terry. His mouth screwed up into a whistle. The tune— A tawdry but haunting little melody came through his lips. Terry turned back to the piano. "'Of course, you know you flatted every note,' she said. This time it was the blonde who laughed, and the man who flushed. Terry cocked her head just a little to one side, like a knowing bird, looked up into the space beyond the piano top, and played the lilting little melody he had whistled with charm and fidelity. The dark young man followed her with a wagging of the head and little jerks of both outspread hands.' His expression was beatific, and raptured. He hummed a little under his breath, and anyone who was music-wise would have known that he was just half-beat behind her all the way. When she had finished, he sighed deeply, ecstatically. He bent his lean frame over the counter and, despite his swart coloring, seemed to glitter upon her, his eyes, his teeth, his very fingernails. "'Something led me here. I never come up on Tuesdays, but something!' "'You was going to complain,' put in his lady heavily, "'about that Teddy Sykes at the Palace Gardens "'singing the same songs this week "'that you've been boosting at the inn. "'He put up a vibrant, peremptory hand. "'Bah! What does that matter now? "'What does anything matter now? "'Listen, Miss, uh, Miss... "'Sheehan, Terry Sheehan.' "'He gazed off a moment into space. "'Hm, Leon Salmon in songs. "'Miss Terry Sheehan at the piano.' doesn't sound bad. Now listen, Miss Sheehan. I'm singing down at the University Inn. The Gatshok song hits. I guess you know my work. But I want to talk to you, private. It's something to your interest. I go on down at the inn at six. Will you come and have a little something with Ruby and me, now?' "'Now?' faltered Terry, somewhat helplessly. Things seemed to be moving rather swiftly for her, accustomed as she was to the peaceful routine of the past four years." Get your hat. It's your life chance. Wait till you see your name in two-foot electrics over the front of every big-time house in the country. You've got music in you. Tie to me and you're made. He turned to the woman beside him. Isn't that so, Rube? Sure. Look at me. One would not have thought there could be so much subtle vindictiveness in a fat blonde. Sammet whipped out a watch. Just three-quarters of an hour. Come on, girlie. His conversation had been conducted in an urgent undertone, with side glances at the fat man with the megaphone. Terry approached him now. I'm leaving now, she said. Oh, no, you're not. Six o'clock is your quitting time, in which he touched the Irish and Terry. Anytime I quit is my quitting time. We'll return with That's Marriage, Part 2 by Edna Ferber, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. She went in quest of hat and coat, much as the girl had done whose place she had taken early in the day. The fat man followed her protesting. Terry, putting on her hat, tried to ignore him, but he laid one plump hand on her arm and kept it there, though she tried to shake him off. "'Now listen to me. That boy wouldn't mind grinding his heel on your face if he thought it would bring him up a step. I know him. See that walking stick he's carrying? Well, compared to the yellow stripe that's in him, that cane is a lead pencil.' "'He's a song-tout. That's all he is.' "'Then, more feverishly, as Terry tried to pull away, "'Wait a minute. You're a decent girl. I want to—' "'Why, he can't even sing a note without you give it to him first. "'He can put a song over, yes. But how?' "'By flashing that toothy grin of his and talking every word of it. "'Don't you—' "'But Terry freed herself with a final jerk and whipped around the counter. "'The two, who had been talking together in an undertone, "'turned to welcome her. "'We've got a half hour. "'Come on. "'It's just over to Clark "'and up a block or so.' "'The University Inn, "'that gloriously intercollegiate institution "'which welcomes any graduate "'of any school of experience, "'was situated in the basement, "'down a flight of stairs. "'Into the unwanted quiet "'that reigns during the hour "'of low potentiality, "'between five and six, "'the three went, "'and seated themselves "'at a table in an obscure corner. "'A waiter brought them things "'in little glasses, "'though no order had been given.' The woman who had been Ruby Watson was so silent as to be almost wordless. But the man talked rapidly. He talked well, too. The same quality that enabled him, voiceless though he was, to boost a song to success was making his plea sound plausible in Terry's ears now. I've got to go and make up in a few minutes. So get this. I'm not going to stick down in this basement eating house forever. I've got too much talent. If I only had a voice, I mean a singing voice, but I haven't. "'But then, neither had Georgie Cohen, "'and I can't see that it wrecked his life any. "'Now listen, I've got a song. "'It's my own. "'That bit you played for me up at Godshalks "'is part of the chorus. "'But it's the words that'll go big. "'They're great. "'It's an aviation song, see? "'Airplane stuff. "'They're yelling that it's the aeroplanes "'that are going to win this war. "'Well, I'll help them. "'This song is going to put the aviator where he belongs. "'It's going to be the big song of the war.' "'It's going to make Tipperary sound like a moody and sankey hymn. "'It's the—' "'Ruby lifted her heavy-lidded eyes and sent him a meaning look. "'Get down to business, Leon. "'I'll tell her how good you are while you're making up.' "'He shot her a malignant glance, but took her advice. "'Now, what I've been looking for for years "'is somebody who has got the music knack to give me the accompaniment just a quarter of a jump ahead of my voice. "'See? "'I can follow like a lamb, but I've got to have that feeler first. It's more than a knack. It's a gift. And you've got it. I know it when I see it. I want to get away from this nightclub thing. There's nothing in it for a man of my talent. I'm gunning for a bigger game. But they won't sign me without a tryout. And when they hear my voice, they... Well, if me and you work together, we can fool them. The song's great. And my makeup's one of those aviation costumes to go with the song, see? Pants tight in the knee and baggy on the hips. And a coat with one of those full skirt... "'What do you call them's? "'Peplums,' put in Ruby placidly. "'Yeah, sure. "'And the girls will be wild about it. "'And the words!' He began to sing, gratingly, off-key. "'Put on your sky-clothes, put on your fly-clothes, "'and take a trip with me. We'll, "'We'll sail so high up in the sky, "'we'll drop a bomb of mercury.' "'Why, that's awfully cute!' exclaimed Harry. "'Until now her opinion of Mr. Samet's talents "'had not been on level with his.' Yeah, but wait till you hit the second verse. That's only part of the chorus. You see, he's supposed to be talking to a French girl. He says, I'll parlez-vous en français plain. You answer, Cher Americaine. The six o'clock lights blazed up suddenly. A sad-looking group of men trailed in and made for the corner where certain bulky, shapeless bundles were soon revealed as those glittering and torturous instruments which go to make a jazz band. You better go, Lee. The crowd comes in awful early now with all these buyers in town. Both hands on the table, he half-rose, reluctantly, still talking. I've got three other songs. They make Gottschalk stuff look sick. All I want's a chance. What I want you to do is accompaniment. On the stage, see? Grand piano, and a swell set. I haven't quite made up my mind to it, but it's a kind of army camp room, see? And maybe you dress as dressed as liberty. Anyway, it'll be new, and a knockout. "'If only we can get away with the voice thing. "'Say, if any boy all those years never had a—' "'The band opened with a terrifying clash of cymbal and a thump of drum. "'Back at the end of my first turn,' he said as he read. "'Terry followed his lithe, electric figure. "'She turned to meet the heavy-lidded gaze of the woman seated opposite. "'She relaxed then and sat back with a little sigh. "'Well, if you talks that way to the manager's—' I don't see—Ruby laughed a mirthless little laugh. Talk doesn't get it over with the manager's honey. You've got to deliver. Well, but he's—that song is a good one. I don't see it's as good as he thinks it is, but it is good. Yes, admitted the woman, grudgingly. It's good. Well, then? The woman beckoned the waiter. He nodded and vanished and reappeared with the glass that was twin to the one she had just emptied. Does he look like he knew French, or could make a rhyme? But didn't he? Doesn't he? The words were written by a little French girl who used to skate down here last winter when the craze was on. She was stuck on a Chicago kid who went over to fly for the French. And the music? There was a Russian girl who used to dance in the cabaret, and she... Terry's head came up with a characteristic little jerk. I don't believe it. Better. She gazed at Terry with the drowsy look that was so different from the quick, clear glance of the Ruby Watson who used to dance so nimbly in the old Bijou days. What did you and your husband quarrel about, Terry? Terry was furious to feel herself flushing. Oh, nothing. He just, uh, um, it was... Say, how did you know we'd quarreled? and suddenly all the fat woman's apathy dropped from her like a garment, and some of the old sparkle and animation illumined her heavy face. She pushed her glass aside and leaned forward on her folded arms, so that her face was close to Terry's. "'Terry Sheehan, I know you've quarreled, and I know just what it was about, oh, I don't mean the very thing it was about, but the kind of thing. I'm going to do something for you, Terry, that I wouldn't take the trouble to do for most women. But I guess I ain't had all the softness knocked out of me yet.' "'though it's a wonder. "'And I guess I remember too plain "'the decent kid you was in the old days. "'What was the name of that little small-time house "'me and Jim used to play? Bijou, that's it. Bijou. "'The band struck up a new tune. "'Leon Sammet, sleek, "'lithe in his evening clothes, "'appeared with a little fair girl in pink chiffon. "'The woman reached across the table "'and put one pudgy, jeweled hand "'on Terry's arm. "'He'll be through in ten minutes.' Now listen to me. I left Jim four years ago, and there hasn't been a minute since then, day or night, when I wouldn't have crawled back to him on my hands and knees if I could. But I couldn't. He wouldn't have me now. How could he? How do I know you've quarreled? I can see it in your eyes. They look just the way mine have felt for four years, that's how. I met up with this boy, and there wasn't anybody to do the good turn for me that I'm trying to do for you. Now get this. I left Jim because when he ate corn on the cob, he always closed his eyes, and it drove me nuts. Don't laugh. I'm not laughing, said Terry. Women are like that. One night, we was playing Fond du Lac. I remember just as plain. We was eating supper before the show, and Jim reached for one of those big yellow ears and buttered and salted it, and me kind of hanging on to the edge of the table with my nails. It seemed to me if he shut his eyes when he put his teeth into that ear of corn— I would scream! And he did! And I screamed! And that's all there was! Terry sat staring at her with a wide eyed stare, like a sleepwalker. Then she wet her lips slowly. That's almost the very-Kid, go on back home. I don't know whether it's too late or not, but go anyway. If you've lost him, I suppose it ain't any more than you deserve. "'but I hope to God you don't get your deserts this time.' "'He's almost through. "'If he sees you going, "'he can't quit in the middle of a song to stop you. "'He'll know I put you wise, "'and he'll probably half kill me for it. "'But it's worth it. "'Now get out of here.' "'And Terry, dazed, shaking, but grateful, fled. "'Down the noisy aisle, up the stairs, to the street, "'back to her rooming house, "'out again with her suitcase.' And into the right railroad station somehow, at last. Not another would tone a train until midnight. She shrank into a remote corner of the waiting room, and there she huddled until midnight, watching the entrances like a child who is fearful of ghosts in the night. Watching the entrances like a child who is fearful of ghosts in the night. The hands of the station clock seemed fixed and immovable. The hour between eleven and twelve was endless. She was on the train. It was almost morning. It was morning. Dawn was breaking. She was home. She had the house key clutched tightly in her hand long before she turned Schroeder's corner. Suppose he had come home. Suppose he had jumped the town and come home ahead of his schedule. They had quarreled once before, and he had done that. Up the front steps. Into the house. Not a sound. Not a sound. She stood there a moment in the early morning half-light. She peered into the dining room. The table, with its breakfast debris, was as she had left it. In the kitchen, the coffee pot stood on the gas stove. She was home. She was safe. She ran up the stairs, got out of her clothes, and into gingham morning things. She flung open windows everywhere. Downstairs, once more, she plunged into an orgy of cleaning. Dishes, table, stove, floor, rugs. She washed, scoured, swabbed, polished. By eight o'clock she had done the work that would ordinarily have taken until noon. The house was shining, orderly, and redolent of soap suds. During all this time she had been listening. Listening with her subconscious ear. Listening for something she had refused to name definitely in her mind, but listening just the same. Waiting. And then, at eight o'clock, it came. The rattle of a key in the lock. The boom of the front door. Firm Firm footsteps. He did not go to meet her, and she did not go to meet him. They came together and were in each other's arms. She was weeping. Now, now, old girl, what's there to cry about? Don't, honey, don't. It's all right. She raised her head then to look at him. How fresh and rosy and big he seemed, after that little sallow restaurant rat. How did you get here, and how did you happen— I jumped all the way from Ashland couldn't get a sleeper, so I sat up all night. I had to come back and square things with you, Terry. My mind just wasn't on my work. I kept thinking how I'd talked, how what I'd said. Oh, Orville, don't. I can't bear. Have you had your breakfast? No. The train was an hour late. You know that Aston train. But she was out of his arms and making for the kitchen. You go and clean up. I'll have hot biscuits and everything in no time. You poor boy! No breakfast? She made good her promise. It couldn't have been more than half an hour later when he was buttering his third feathery golden brown biscuit. But she had eaten nothing. She watched him and listened, and again her eyes were somber, but for a different reason. He broke open his egg. His elbow came up just a fraction of an inch. Then he remembered and flushed like a schoolboy. "'and brought it down again, carefully. "'And at that she gave a tremulous cry "'and rushed around the table to him. "'Oh, Orville!' "'She took the offending elbow in her two arms "'and bent and kissed the rough coat sleeve. i Terry, don't, honey, don't!' "'Oh, Orville, listen!' "'Yes?' "'Listen, Orville.' "'I'm listening, Terry. "'I've got something to tell you.' There's something you've got to know. Yes, I know it, Terry. I knew you'd out with it, pretty soon, if i just waited. She lifted an amazed face from his shoulder then and stared at him. But how could you know? You couldn't. How could you? He patted her shoulder then gently. I can always tell. When you have something on your mind, you always take up a spoon of coffee and look at it and kind of joggle it back and forth in the spoon, and then dribble it back into the cup again, without once tasting it. It used to get me nervous when we were first married, watching you. But now I know it just means you're worried about something, and I wait, and pretty soon... "'Oh, Orville!' she cried then. "'Now, Terry, just spill it, hun. Just spill it to Daddy, and you'll feel better.' We hope you enjoyed That's Marriage by Edna Ferber. If you did, please send us a kind review at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners find us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.